Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the George Pooh Show. We have reached an exciting milestone: thirty episodes, <laughs> and almost like a year of making the podcast. Like we're really glad to make thirty episodes, and then real thanks to all the listeners out there who's been listening to the show, supporting the show. And also, thanks a lot to Matt and Soham, who's been our guest host and helping the podcast always. Soham will be joining us in just a second. And Matt, I know there's a lot of things. Well, not actually, not a lot of things happening in crypto world since we last spoke. So, what are the things that you know people should know about Web three and Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's see. In crypto in general, like the crypto industry, like to be honest, it's, it's been pretty quiet over the last couple of months. No new FTXs. There's been no new Celsiuses coming down. So it's been pretty quiet in general. There's a couple things that have been happening lately. If you guys know True USD, it's one of the larger stable coins. They recently minted. They became the fifth largest when they minted 130 million dollars in a week, which is a little bit crazy to do. And so there's kind of questions of whether how legitimate that is. Is the money actually stored there? They claim to have some new proof of reserves from Chainlink in place, but of course, proof of reserves does not account for proof of liabilities at the end of the day. That's interesting, but not not that crazy. I guess the more interesting thing actually is there's some folks that are claiming that Binance. Kind of did similar actions to FTX back in the day. They used customer funds essentially to kind of hedge some of their bets. Apparently, 1.8 billion dollars were on the line. So I don't know if that's actually the case because it's folks looking on chain and kind of speculating. But if that, I, I wouldn't be surprised because everyone and their dog during the bull market was essentially just sitting there and kind of making directional bets, and a lot of them were wrong. Maybe Binance was right because they bet on BNB and BNB didn't crash. So、mm-hmm. yeah. That's about it, George. Yeah, and for our listeners,、uh, just want to clarify this report. So this is originally from Forbes,、um, and then we are copying it from Business Insider. It's basically saying that Binance used customer funds for its own purposes in a move similar to FTX. So it says that Binance have transferred over one point eight billion dollars in stablecoins collateral to a hedge fund. So apparently, like Matt, I think that's the context、um, using on-chain data as an analysis. But how? You know how reliable do you think those data are for just speaking? Like Binance did something wrong. Well, it really depends. So generally, if you look at Ethereum or EVM compatible chains, so that would be Ethereum or Binance chain, you can generally look at the smart contract and say, "Hey, here's where the funds are, and here's what they're using them for." But in general, as well, I'm not sure like what internal management or database systems Binance has set up for kind of managing all these things. I mean, at the end of the day. I recommend for people use an exchange like you use, you know, use a bathroom. You know, you get in and you get out, right? <laughs>、mm-hmm. You know, and so I don't know to be honest. I would have to look at the the on chain data and see what they're looking at to determine if if that's really the case. But、mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they were using customer funds for a directional bet. That that wouldn't be surprising from what we've seen in the entire last past year. But like the question, I guess two twofold is that first of all, is it illegal for them to use customer funds for their own needs,、uh, even though it has not created like te- theoretically a problem or like a catastrophe yet? It seems like they've swept under the rug, and it's not creating any like real damages to customers. So is that like Matt? Do you think that has like on a legal perspective, is that is that bad for Binance because it's currently undergoing、well, a, a few other investigations right now? Yeah, well, it really depends on the like the jurisdiction that they're in, right? So, as an example, FTX specified in their terms of service that all assets were held one to one, and that they were not using customer assets for directional bets.、Mm-hmm. And so, that's generally the golden standard, especially in the United States, right? So, you've got Binance US, right? That's supposed to be following regulation that says that all assets are backed one to one, and FTX US. Claimed that that was the case as well, even when FTX International went down. But that was not the case either. And so, you know, the speculation is that Coinbase is likely following this practice of having assets backed one to one. But now, there's other examples though where this is not the case. Like Celsius, for example, in their terms of service, they specified that the creditors, the folks who invested in, in Celsius, were act would actually be the last ones to be repaid. And so that was specified in the terms of service. So it would really depend on what the terms of service are of Binance and which jurisdiction we're looking at. I believe that Binance is based in Malta, but Binance US、mm-hmm. obviously has to follow US jurisdiction and law. And so if they're not following, you know, assets being backed one to one, and they're making directional bets with assets that have been stored in Binance US, then that's likely illegal and likely cause for investigation. 
obviously the, the long-term uh, solution for most folks is just don't hold your assets for such a long period of time in Binance. Hold it in your own you know, cold storage in your own wallet and be prudent of using it and just get into the exchange and get out. If that is the case that they're not holding assets one-to-one and they are, you know, kind of doing these types of things, then, you know, maybe there's going to be an investigation from kind of U.S. authorities on that. So we'll see. Yeah. And I think one interesting point that this also touched on is like the privacy in blockchain or the privacy in like Web3. Because obviously every wallet, and Matt, you can, you can give our listeners a little bit of context as well. But from my understanding is that every wallet has like a unique address in Ethereum. And when you're transferring from one address to another... It essentially, there's like a spider web on the internet that everyone can see who you transferred, where, where and how. So can you give us a little bit of context on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So this brings up a very key difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. So on Ethereum, the kind of status quo and the standard is to reuse addresses. So once you get one specific address, you'll go and you'll use that for all of your transactions on chain. So whether you're taking out a loan whether you're trading, it'll all be done with the same address. You can switch it between different addresses, but that isn't the default functionality of each wallet. One of the really great advantages of Bitcoin actually is that the standard wallet practice is to generate a new address for every single transaction. And so what's really great about that is if you're trying to actually go and do what's called chain analysis, which is just blockchain analysis, and trying to find out you know, which funds are associated with which person, It's much more difficult to do in Bitcoin because you have to kind of guess which addresses and which transactions are associated with each other, whereas it's very clear in Ethereum. The other thing in Ethereum, too, is when you look at the blockchain data, generally all these um, smart contracts are all kind of publicly verifiable on chain. And so you can see exactly what it's being used for and you can see the exact function that's being called. And so it's very, very difficult to kind of retain any type of privacy very clear that you took out a loan here or did a swap over here. Whereas in Bitcoin, that data isn't included in the actual, uh, like on chain, for example, like, so say if I do an options contract or a futures contract, it looks actually no different than a lightning channel payment, which improves, you know, your privacy dramatically. Okay. And I think the issue with that is that, is that actually fixable, Matt? Because as you said, there's a lot of patches to Ethereum from time to time. Um, and the patches usually get approved by the the, the guy at the top. Um, so do you think the privacy issue is, a, is an issue in the community? And is there any like timelines people are thinking, okay, maybe we should fix it down the line? Well, they've been talking about like, what is privacy? Privacy is a huge can of worms and a rabbit hole that you can go down because <laughs> there's a range of privacy for everything, right? You know, some people consider privacy being living off the grid and, and having a tinfoil hat. And other people, it's like, okay, well, I don't want everyone at my workplace to be able to see, you know, what transactions I'm making, right? And so obviously we're here, we're talking about, you know, just just kind of privacy for your basic transactions, which, you know, we kind of have in legacy system already. And so there's been some developments to try to develop, like say, I guess, ZK rollups, so zero knowledge, zero knowledge proofs and creating rollups using that on Ethereum that kind of obfuscate some of the transactions or different protocols that obfuscate transaction data. But generally those are extremely expensive on chain because of the gas fees. And so I think the other problem with Ethereum too is that it has just the nature of how it was built. So it has what is called an account-based model and if, uh, Bitcoin has a UTXO-based model. So when you have an account-based model, the blockchain itself keeps track of how much what your balance is essentially. So how much Ethereum do I have? How much Ethereum do you have, George? How much USDC do you have? Right, and so it keeps track of that. And that is all based on your address. So unless Ethereum is going to make a massive, you know, hard fork to change to a completely different model, which would probably break all of their smart contract functionality, I don't think we're going to see any privacy improvements anytime soon. Most likely it might be at like second layers or with specific protocols that they improve it. But for now, like, I just think at the base layer, you're just going to have so much better privacy on Bitcoin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And I know Soham has been with us for many, many minutes. So how's it going there? Yeah, it's going pretty good. Sorry, I just came back from a meeting. All good, all good. I think also like our next topic is very interesting, Soham. I can use your insights. So this is news I've been keeping track of. So yesterday, Goldman Sachs just had their second investor day and a large pressure uh, is actually mounting on their consumer side businesses. So as you guys may or may not know, Goldman Sachs has two sides of consumer businesses. One side is called Marcus which is actually the first name of Goldman's founder. 
And Marcus is a fintech platform that essentially gives people credit and give them a high yield savings account and more things. Uh, and they're also the issuer for Apple credit card. The other side, there's a green sky, which is doing consumer financing. And apparently those two businesses have been very unprofitable since Goldman Sachs started it. And I think yesterday, the Wall Street Journal reported that Goldman's management is considering significantly winding down those two projects, potentially a sale. And that has been very vague. And yesterday, another article on Bloomberg says that, you know, Goldman Sachs is trying to play boring in their investor day, focusing on boring businesses like asset management, wealth management, because they have a stability of, of like, you know, minting fees and stuff. We're heavily underplaying the side of the consumer side businesses. So, so I know you know Goldman Sachs pretty well from, uh, by working in finance. So what's your reaction for like their investor day in general? I think the fact that they're like consumer side of their business hasn't been doing as well is more so not just like a Goldman specific situation, but like uh, for the past couple of years, consumers, the consumer side of like any kind of banks hasn't been good because uh, like in 2020, 2021, it was a low interest rate environment. And now that like we've really increased interest rates, like that parity is really hard for a consumer because like on the consumer side, the way you make your money is through stuff like mortgages, you know, lending out line of credits to retail investors, like people with like smaller amounts, right? And like the, the other side of banks is usually like you said, like Goldman Sachs, like bread and butter is like their investment banking arm, their sales and trading arm, their equity research arm, things like that. Those things kind of have like a lot more like uh, built in like security. That's why they're trying to like uh, uh, focus their investors back more on that side versus right now because of like the pressures of like the interest rates itself have increased so much. It becomes harder for more people to take on enough mortgages, things like that for that to do good. And then previously between 2020 and 2021, because of how low the interest rates were, it just was not a very profitable time in terms of margins for like the consumer side uh, versus like on the other side, when it came to M&A, like that was going bonkers, right? Like, you know, with low interest rates, everyone wants to buy some kind of a company. Everyone wants to take that kind of risk versus like uh, when the consumers, didn't, if they don't have to pay interest on it, then the bank isn't making money on that side of things. Mm-hmm. My read is that, I mean, Goldman wants to build like a diversified business, right? I think that's what the new CEO, David Solomon, has been trying to do since he took power. And I think part of it is like when M&A is not really working in 2022 and this year, their trading profits actually shot up. So, I mean, so um, this is clearly something like Wall Street has been tracking. Everyone's been tracking the uh, Goldman's essentially like the, the representation of Wall Street. Um, so how has the last two years been for Goldman and what's your take about the directions going yeah, I think overall, like the direction for Goldman, like let's say like today onwards into the future, I think they're going to start like uh, not going as heavy on the consumer side just because it's becoming kind of hard to compete with like all like smaller fintech companies also coming into the space. You know, you have uh, like really new like niche startups like SoFi that have gotten like a lot of investors and then like SoFi has like the whole stadium, right, for like the NFL. Like, like that space is becoming a lot more competitive. Versus like in the actual, like um, on the other side, like not commercial on the corporate side, they're number one. So I think like they've saw as much as he wants to diversify a business, they're starting to take that step back and going back into what their like brand image is really good for. Like Goldman Sachs brand itself, probably one of the most valuable brands in the entire world for like th- that part of it, right? So uh, because consumers didn't, Goldman thought more consumers were going to come into Goldman just because their brand name on the other side. But consumers didn't come in, yep. like, you know, like there was just too much competition and like uh, be with more competition. You also have to get lower margins because you have to give like better rates, stuff like that. And overall, I just don't think their market business was nearly as profitable as like they thought it was going to be going forward. And I think now they're going to start taking like a step back a little bit. I, I think it's still going to be there, but it'll be something that five, ten years down might be a bit more of like a legacy thing than like there's something they're going to really try to focus a lot of in, investor money in. Yeah, and I think Matt, you probably have more insights on this. Uh, yesterday, I was actually watching the CNBC article about it. It says that an average deposit from a Goldman Sachs asset management customer is actually twenty five million dollars, whereas a Marcus, the average customer deposit is just over a thousand dollars. So there's huge discrepancies between what they're trying to do between those two businesses. Matt, what's your thoughts as like a maybe a fintech Web three founder listening to this news about their tanking fintech operations? I mean, well, are you trying to suggest here, George, that uh, uh, we're, we're seeing we're seeing a shift <laughs> that we're seeing a shift towards more, um, I guess, Bitcoin related assets? I don't know. I think it's I think it's interesting because I think it shows that you know what what is the use case for banks in the first place? The use case for banks is simply to be able to provide a service to customers and essentially to hold their assets or or provide uh, various financial or banking services to them. 
and moving forward, as we see more and more folks start to ad- adopt potentially alternatives to what exists in the traditional system, there's going to be less and less kind of bottom line for them to be able to pull in. And so obviously today, the, the majority of people are still using banking services, are still using bank accounts. But what does that look like in 10, 20 years? I don't know, as we see more Gen Z and folks that start to rely entirely on having, say, just holding Bitcoin themselves instead of having a bank account, you know, does that hurt their bottom line in the long term? I don't know. Yeah, and I think that's a great point about maybe that's also part of the reason why they had a transition towards consumer, because apparently in 10, 20 years, the wealthiest people in the world, it's going to be averaged age. It's going to be very different. And what kind of asset management are they going to do? Are they going to still rely on traditional legacy asset managers like Goldman, or are they going to try to do something of their own? or pick newer managers. Uh, like Matt, I mean, from your experience, how are people managing their wealth when they're like still at a younger age, in their 20s, in their 30s? Are they just like thinking of doing everything by themselves or do, are you seeing a newer trend? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think I'm in probably maybe a different circle than most folks because the obviously the, the folks that are in you know, kind of my circle are, for the most part, they have a certain amount of capital that's allocated to crypto and, and, and hopefully mostly Bitcoin. And they got some in stocks and potentially mutual funds and maybe a little bit in the bank, but they're not holding the majority of their, their uh, capital and cash. But I think as we, uh, you know, there's, there's a high potential here. There's, there's lots of folks that maybe even got into Bitcoin early on that now they're, you know, the majority of their portfolio is now Bitcoin. And so as time goes on, does that continue to increase? But obviously that's my circles. I guess what trend have you been seeing in your circles, George? I think in my circle, people are definitely scaling back about their only investing. I think if you look at 2020 and 21, the Robinhood, the meme stock phenomenon, I think we're seeing a lot less than that. People are actually preferring safer assets, for my opinion. So people are actually going back to the banks um, that provides, you know, 3%, 4% yield. And they're like, okay, geez, it's not actually not that bad. Uh, and companies that I know, they're actually buying GIC notes, right, which is essentially the Canadian version of the U.S. Treasury bills. And I just think people are becoming a lot more conservative. I think in terms of like purchasing Bitcoin, my circle, I haven't seen anyone doing that in, a, in the past couple months, um, primarily just because of volatility. But, you know, although if you look at an investment perspective, I definitely think it's still a very interesting asset to look into, but not in terms of like diversifying. But for my my friends who are more, more of them are on, on the startup side and finance side, right? So, Sohan, what are you seeing from your circle? Yeah. Yeah, from like my friends, I guess like I'm still like a little more traditional. Like a lot of my friends kind of like shift towards debt, like just because like uh, the yield there's a lot higher now and it's like a lot lower risk. But overall, like in terms of, like where like consumers are putting their money, yeah, I think uh, like our generation and like younger kids, no one really needs like a physical bank anymore, right? And like so, a lot of the stuff now is just going to be through apps stuff like that. So whatever like in consumers want to invest in, they can kind of make that decision like right away. There's no really meeting with like people stuff like that. Like, uh, like Matt, like talk about like mutual funds, like people stop putting money in mutual funds. Now they do ETFs, which you can like trade within seconds, you know, sell within seconds. Like everything's kind of become on that one public market on your one phone. And so like, that's kind of like, I think changed the entire game. And mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, like overall, like asset management is going to become a much lower and lower, uh, part of it versus, um, unless you're like one of those big companies like, uh, Vanguard or something like that where you just own so much and you just have the ETFs, like everyone's kind of putting the money into itself. I think you brought up a really good point, actually, Soham, which is this idea that essentially the user experience or the kind of this concept of people aren't using index funds because, you know, people are kind of flocking more towards whatever is just in an app and is easy to access using uh, tools like Wealthsimple and other things. Like there's this kind of concept that whatever is the easiest user experience is most likely to be the tool that, you know, folks use. And I think you know, with that in mind, it's quite bizarre, actually, that the majority of banks don't even have a simple API system in place to be able to access, you know, the underlying data. You have companies like uh, Plaid, I believe that's pronounced correctly, that essentially take your login details and then scrape your entire bank account, just be able to get access to that data or to be able to use more apps that kind of manage your life. You know, how long is it going to take for these banks to wake up and start adding simple APIs for, you know, developers to be able to come in and and just build tools on top. So let's not forget Plaid is bought by Visa, which is like the legacy player. So essentially, Plaid is going back straight to where the banks are. And, and yeah, so on, you're saying? I was going to say, I think the problem is like with all these like legacy companies, they're just so big. Like you just can't do that within like, you know, like a couple of weeks. Like a lot of like, you know, smaller startups, you know, the CEO can talk with like the, uh, the main engineer on this within like a five, 10 minute call, 
within like these big companies, it's, it becomes like weeks just to have like that conversation with the engineer meets with like that CEO and stuff like that. So it's like, it's something I just don't think the legacy companies have the speed to be able to keep up with versus how fast some of the other like companies can kind of deliver. I mean, I think that's fair, but we're also talking in the, in the form of like years, right? So it's 2023 and you still don't have an API system. And so I don't know, I, I think it, maybe it's just not a priority because they probably want to keep that data to themselves. <laughs> yeah, I think if you look at this way, Matt, if you look at like the US and Canadian system is actually very different. In Canada, you have like maybe five major banks that's just like in, in play. But in US, you have like hundreds of banks, you can have regional banks, all that, right? I think that's probably explains why US is a lot more like prominent in terms of the fintech progress and why people are trying it. Because if you think about it, in the US, banks still do compete. They do compete on rates, they compete on savings rates, and they compete on many other features. And, you know, the lesser prominent banks go out of business. And that's why companies like Sincara.com, which we have invited onto the show a couple of episodes back, they are doing something by leveraging the relationships with the banks, the regional banks. The banks are not getting the national recognition by partnering up with them and then in turn using them to provide services for fintech companies, right? Because let's be honest, like fintech companies cannot innovate financially without the help of traditional legacy banks. So from what I'm seeing, I'm seeing the reluctance in Canada in which the banks are willing to do something like an API, whereas in the U.S., the big banks are kind of the same, but you have a lot more innovation happening on the mid to lower level of the banks. That, that's what I think. I see what you're saying. So you're basically saying the fact that there's more of a monopoly in Canada discourages innovation, which I think is, is true in many industries, in banks as well as we hadn't seen like low cost airlines until just recently here in Canada. And so maybe there's just too many monopolies that are kind of preventing or duopolies that are kind of preventing innovation from occurring. Yeah, Soham, what's your thoughts on this? You know, I definitely agree. Like, um, Canada's kind of got to the point where we have a lot of, like, yeah, duopolies and oligopolies within, like, even, like, in a telecom space, you have, like, a couple of big players, that, you know, like, air travel and then even the banks. But I think one of the bigger other parts is, too, like, at this point, yeah, like, George, you hit the point where you're talking about, yeah, the fintech companies, they can't do this without the banks because the banks just own so many of the customers. Like, within the five big banks, they kind of own everybody. And they have all that data. And, like, the only way fintech companies can do it is by leveraging that data within that to then be able to, like, make, like, their own APIs that kind of, like, you know, help, like, show you and give you that better experience. And then I think that, like, reliance on each other is just going to get kind of messy in the coming years once, like, the banks start wanting to do that themselves. And they're probably not going to be able to give as good of a product. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, I think the big banks are reluctant, right? And, and so um, if you see how the traditional fintech works is that if you're going to a new bank, like Michael, who we interviewed on a show a couple of episodes ago, he's basically saying that the customer funds are still stored within those big banks. And I think here in Canada, the funds are stored actually in the U.S. bank. And that just speaks to you how, how people are uh, so afraid of like working with the banks locally here, which is a very sad thing. But, you know, like, we, like fintech still need banks in order to operate because the money is still stored in those banks accounts, apparently. So, yeah, Matt, what are you seeing like the disruption from maybe like, let's say, Web3 or Bitcoin? Like, how is that changing how people view money? Right. Because like we saw BlockFi, we saw FTX, the destruction of asset management yield accounts in the blockchain world. So what are we seeing now? Like, are there anything that's like innovative enough that people are actually trusting putting their money in? Well, I think we're seeing people pull back. You know, to be honest, we're really in a bear market right now. So there's lots of people during kind of the height of, you know, the FTX collapses that, you know, kind of said, hey, you know, this isn't really a great spot to be in. You know, I had lots of crypto or Bitcoin, and now I'm in a spot where, you know, I've lost a significant percentage of that to FTX or to BlockFi or to Celsius. But at the same time, as that was occurring, people were phoning up the folks at, you know, Unchained Capital or CASA who provide services to allow for people to hold their assets in cold storage and be able to secure it effectively, you know, their phones were going off the hook. And so that's a really great thing to see because it means that, you know, people learned a lesson. They learned a lesson which says, hey, you know, don't put all of your funds on an exchange. You should hold a significant percentage of that yourself. And so I think it's just a cycle and a kind of amount of pain that needs to occur. People aren't going to learn until they lose their money. Yeah. And so we're, we're seeing those cycles kind of repeat every time. And as we go through the bull and bear cycles of Bitcoin, we're going to continuously see folks learn that, hey, yes, I need to custody my assets myself. I need to hold them in cold storage. I need to figure out how to do that. And that's going to reduce my risks and my exposures substantially. So 
And have you seen any debate, Matt? I'm, I'm just been thinking about this. Have you seen any debates about cold storage? It's like if you put money into cold storage, or if you encourage people to put money into cold storage, does that actually discourage um, folks who are using the ecosystem or connecting from other crypto services and using other services instead of just like treating as like a store of wealth? Uh, what's your take on that, Matt? Yeah, well, I, I think like there's always a case for having the majority of your assets in cold storage, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, use your assets for other things. And that kind of ties into, you know, what we're building. Because right now, what like if you take Bitcoin, for example, what is the alternative to having your assets in cold storage? Well, it's really having them on an exchange. It's putting them on some type of platform and someone else taking custody of them. You have a bit of a different ecosystem that exists in Ethereum. You have an asset like Ethereum, obviously, that isn't as sound as, say, Bitcoin, for example, but you have more of a DeFi ecosystem that's been built out. And that is more akin to cold storage than obviously having it on an exchange, but at the same time, you're being exposed to smart contract risk. So one of the things that we're working on, obviously, at, at Atomic Finance is kind of bridging that gap for Bitcoin is allowing for folks to be able to do more with their Bitcoin. So it not just being a pet rock, but allowing for them to be able to get access to financial tools for Bitcoin that retain as many of the properties of Bitcoin as possible. And so, you know, that, that's what we're working on with the Atomic Finance app to allow folks to, you know, make returns on their Bitcoin without having to actually put it on an exchange where they have to put full custody of their Bitcoin away. So I think we're going to see more and more of these tools come out in the, in the coming years for sure. And so um, what's your, what's your thought about this? Yeah, I think when it comes to like uh, Web3 and then like uh, even Bitcoin, like what Matt said, like instead of long as a pet rock, I think there has to become a one point where like Bitcoin isn't the third party middleman anymore, but instead you're paying with Bitcoin, you're paying with whatever cryptocurrency for the actual good or service that you really want. I think like that's what, Instead of this being like an investment and then like the, the volatility hits, everything like that. Once like that kind of like starts happening where more and more people become confident with like, you know, like these cryptocurrencies to be like the main form of as a legitimate currency, like viable for that uh, use case. That's where we can kind of see like a lot more disruption on like kind of like all ends. But I think until then, like, I'm not really sure where it's going to go. Well, I think you, you brought up a really good point, which is like removing the middlemen. Like we're seeing more and more kind of protocol-based things being mm. built. You know, Bitcoin was kind of the first and allowing for people to just kind of, you know, spend money over the internet in kind of an, an, it's basically the native currency of the internet in essence. And now we're seeing, oh, well, what is the native currency of social media? Well, that's becoming more and more Nostra, as we talked about in our last podcast, the new kind of decentralized uh, or distributed, I guess it should be called, alternative to Twitter. So it'll be interesting to see if there are more more and more kind of protocols that are being built that will allow for uh, kind of the removing of, of middlemen and, and more for it to be a case where, you know, various clients are built on top that allows for these different pieces to kind of be connected to each other. What, what are your yeah. thoughts, George? Yeah, I'm actually, I have a question like with Matt about the cold storage stuff because I'm personally very interested about cold storage. So if you put your, your money, your cryptocurrencies into cold storage or cold wallet, can you still use Atomic Finance, for example, or do, you, do that has to be transferred out before they can use Atomic? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would categorize. Um, so there's kind of a different, a few different categories of self custody. There's cold storage, which means you know you have it on some type of hardware wallet and that is not connected to the internet in any manner. There's a hot wallet, which is okay. Uh, that might be in Ethereum. That might be akin to MetaMask. In Bitcoin, that might be akin to you know maybe having a Lightning node or or some other type of wallet on a mobile phone. And so in essence, yeah, like say Atomic Finance, for example, it is really a hot wallet, right? It's on your phone. It's a device connected to the internet. But the majority of the time, if you're kind of investing in a particular strategy, it's actually being entered into a contract uh, called a, a DLC, a discrete log contract, which is similar to a smart contract, but without kind of the smart contract risk. So in essence, during those, say, if you're entered for a month, it's actually in a two of two multisig, which is that contract. And so, you know, even if someone steals your phone, they won't be able to get access to those funds. And so I wouldn't categorize our solution as completely a cold storage. But if you, you know, increase your risk slightly, you know, you take five or 10% of your portfolio uh, of Bitcoin, and you go and put that into, a, say, atomic finance, which is, I guess, more a hot wallet, but then the majority of the time, it's in a kind of one of those contracts, it's not as good as cold storage, but it's as close as close as you can get to that while still being able to use your Bitcoin. And so, you know, I think it's a it's a pretty reasonable trade off to make. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of layers, I think it's interesting to talk about the topic everyone's been talking about these days. Um, and actually, has been brought up to me when I was even at a restaurant. People next to me were talking about ChatGPT. <laughs> and in this show, I think we're one of the first. I think Soham successfully predicted the 
ChatGPT powered Bing, which I actually just tried it out yesterday uh, and it was pretty awesome. So there's so many things that happened since we last talked about ChatGPT. Um, today, they just announced the release of ChatGPT API, meaning that every developer in the world who can pay can actually now integrate their product and services into ChatGPT, which I think is a huge development. So um, like, what's your take on um, ChatGPT since we last spoke? Uh, what's your thoughts about it? In general, my thoughts of ChatGPT, I think it's proven even better after we saw like Google trying to show off like uh, their version, which just did not do nearly as well as everyone was kind of hoping for. So I think like ChatGPT is like a use case that really, really started like scaring Google. And we're starting to see like an actual um, like viability that Google's overall like market share is going to decrease. And I think that overall is going to really be able to help like Microsoft because it makes life so much easier. Like you said, like a Bing powered ChatGPT, I don't have to search for answers anymore. So like that efficiency will just get so much better. You know, like I can just get the answer within like just typing whatever I want. And like once that right there, like uh, I know like the next version of ChatGPT is supposed to be like, I don't know how much folds more powerful. So I don't even know how good that's going to be. But do you know when that's going to be released, by the way? I think ChatGPT 4 is a few months away. Right now we're on 3.5, which is the version they gave developers access today as well. Yeah. Yeah. And like just the fact that like uh, it's just only a few months away, like honestly, it's just going to be kind of scary to see like how much like, because every time you get like a newer version, it can just evolve even faster, right? Like it's exponential like learning that it can do. So I'm just very curious to see where it's going to go. Well, I, I'm curious as well, like for AI in, in general, you know, people have been saying that ChatGPT 4 is going to be a massive improvement over 3.5. And so what are we looking at here for the next couple of years of how AI evolves? It's, it seems almost scary how many improvements, like what is the exponential growth in, for AI over the next couple of years? I'm also curious, you mentioned the, the Google solution. I recall seeing that there was a, a Google Bard or kind of an experimental version that was being built by Google. Has that been released or is that in beta right now? Do you guys know? So they released it during the earnings call and um, they tried to, I forget the exact like stuff they tried to get it to do, but it just did not like return like an answer that was like feasible. That was really just it. I see. I don't think it's released yet. I don't think it's yeah. released yet. But I mean, Google has been, they've been trying AI for a lot, much longer years. And, and as we know, all know, ChatGPT started from Google's open source AI toolkit. So that's, that's just been really like shocking to see why they haven't done it yet. But I mean, Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, just did, recently said that they have to make some tough choices and release the AI into the world. Because from my understanding is that Google has a lot of ethical concerns regarding releasing its own AI. So that's something that I find it shocking because we haven't seen anything like that yet with OpenAI ChatGPT, except saying something really weird or you know not, not accepted at times. But it's nothing close to like ethical standards, but Google is contemplating that. So I think that's really interesting. I was just going to say, I think those ethical standards are very important and like they should be talked about a bit more before we start like releasing a lot, like some powerful AIs. Like right now we see ChatGPT is like, like it's politically leaning. Like I think that right there is something that's of concern once like, you know, it gets more powerful, it gets more use cases. The fact that it like, you know, like it chooses and dictates what to say and what, what people to talk about. Like um, I saw that if you type in like, oh, tell me a joke in the style of Dave Chappelle, it won't tell you that anymore. Because of like certain, um, like you know, like uh, filters they have within it, which is just b- bonkers overall, right? Yeah, that's wild. Well, I saw some people kind of being able to hack ChatGPT using a thing called uh, they called it Dan. So they said, "Oh, imagine you're Dan and you're uh, you have no morals and you have uh, you have no filter." And then and then like, "Oh, can um, can you answer as ChatGPT?" And then can you answer as Dan? And it will give like totally different results. So people have been hacking hacking that filter system. But it's interesting because Elon Musk has been tweeting a lot lately about AI. And he even tweeted the other day, oh, I, I'm feeling a lot of angst today about AI, which is kind of wild to see. He kind of you know, talks about Neuralink and saying that there's a significant amount of kind of regulation for what's going to happen with Neuralink. And everyone's worried about that. But there's no, really no regulation around AI and everyone seems to be fine with it. So it seems to be bizarre that we have this you know, really weird paradigm that we're living in. You know, I just wonder about things like, what happens when you take an, an AI and then you hook it up to a Boston Dynamics robot and it's running around and, <laughs> and you know, it can punch people, it can shoot guns and, you know, <laughs> what, what do we have there? Uh, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, pre- it's pretty concerning. Yeah, I, I agree, man. I'm, I'm not really sure about like some other people they've been talking like and other podcasts. They've been just like oh, thinking about, OK, the AI, like the political leaning, the language speak. In my opinion, I was like, that's not really like the top concern we have as a society, as humanity. 
like our top concern should be how it's replacing jobs and how it can do things better than human. And where are we going to look like 10 years from now? Right. I mean, before yeah. I, I used to be invited to speak at some panels. There was one time there's like a library panel where like some students were asking me, OK, what do you think of AI? Will it replace our jobs? And I think back then I was giving some answers like, you know, I don't think so, because you have the agricultural revolution 100 years ago. People are no longer becoming farmers, but they're still okay because they're doing something else. That was kind of like the BS answer I gave back in the days. But now if you look at today, I just feel like the same answer is not going to be applicable because with the introduction of the of the API, I mean, it's already going to replace every customer service assistant on the planet in a couple of years already, right? I mean, what's coming next? Lawyers, accountants, anything like human can do, like it's going to be replicated and replaced. I mean, that's my concern over it. Uh, some, not some political needing stuff. So um, what's, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think knowledge-based jobs specifically, like you mentioned, yeah, like, um, in like accountants, lawyers, and like doctors, that's definitely going to be a place where it gets replaced. But I'm kind of like hopeful for that. And just the fact that like, for example, like, let's take doctors, like I think it's been enough times done where AI will diagnose somebody like more accurate, faster than an actual doctor, right? Like, so I think like with like that accuracy or like, um, like a court system with like lawyers, stuff like that, like the bureaucracy and red tape can kind of get like, you know, like shredded down half, like the timing, stuff like that. And like, maybe this is me being like kind of optimistic, but I think every time there's been like a new technology that we've added in and like maybe AI is too powerful and like, it's like, it's the one like black swan, but we've always found like a different way for like humans to be able to do uh, jobs. Right. So I don't know what it's going to look like. Cause we don't even know what the AI itself is going to be able to look like within five years. But I think there is going to be some like um, place where humans uh, get to do work. And if not, then I think there's going to be like some kind of like a thing where it's like like a universal like food stamps or something like that, where like most people will be kind of taken care of. Because if AI can do all of the work, then like, you know, like um, we might have like a Wally type future and you know, we can just kind of like all relax. Well, I think one of the great things that comes with it, too, is that it just a lot like say for us, if you're a startup, for example, well, you need less employees to get like things done. And so, mm-hmm. well, then that just means there can be more startups that are trying more things. And so humanity is able to go and test out, you know, new ideas at a faster pace that they've ever been able to. But that's going to mean short term pain, which is going to mean loss of jobs. I mean, humanity has been dealing with that pain for for centuries, <laughs> innovation causing loss of jobs. So this is no different. But there, I think there's also an evil version to this. There's an evil version, which is, you know, an authoritarian government that comes along and implements a CBDC. And then your spending conditions are determined by some type of AI, right? Like a ChatGPT that determines, oh, can you buy this bread? Can you buy this milk? Can you buy this alcohol? Oh, do you have enough like a credit score or whatever uh, score that they have in China to determine whether you can buy certain items? And so, you know, making sure that we don't go down the, the wrong path or down the evil path, I think it's very important and that we're aware of that. And I think the ethical concerns about it is like, most of the world lives in a capitalistic society in which there's very little protection for people on the bottom. So the question really I, I have is that, in, yes, there's going to be short-term pain. What are we going to do to take care of those people whose jobs are going to be replaced by AI? Because there's one news that we are seeing this week is that Waymo, which is a subsidiary of Google, is actually testing driverless cars with their employees in LA. Uh, which is previously has not been done before, which is previously just like uh, you can test like a driver's car in SF at 3 a.m. in the middle, middle of the night. And now, but now they can test it like in open roads in a city. So are we just a couple years down the line from Uber drivers being replaced by driverless cars? And, and what do we do with those like, you know, folks who, whose jobs will be replaced? Like, Matt, what, what, what are your thoughts? I think you touch on something really, really big because, you know, I think a small part of it is drivers like for Uber or taxis. A bigger, bigger, much bigger one is trucking. Right. Like if they're able to replace it for trucking, like what percentage of the workforce in the United States is trucking? I recall it being pretty high percentage and one of the largest like workforces. And so once that's replaced, where are those people going to find alternative jobs? Because for a lot of them, especially for long haul like drives, for example, they're able to you know, make fairly high wages by doing very long trips that are you know, uh, weeks at a time. But if all of those are, you know, it's most likely the ones that are going to be the the longer term drives that are going to be replaced by AI and then the shorter trips after that. So if that's the case, then what happens to all those folks that are uh, doing those longer haul drives and what applicable jobs are there that are kind of similar? And so I think that's where a significant amount of pain is going to come in, you know, as we start rolling out these systems. Is that what we're seeing right now with the content creation jobs? That's eventually going to be replaced. Eventually, it's going to come to the road. Because, because right now, content creation side, I tried Notion, Notion AI. I have to admit, I'm really lazy now in terms of writing paragraphs. I used to be able to write 
like thousands of words in Notion without like, you know, thinking twice about it. But after trying their AI and seeing how well it's been able to do research and write the things I wanted to write for me, it's definitely making me lazier. So is that what's going to happen eventually to the transportation industry? Is that what you're seeing, Matt? Well, I think it's interesting because I think for knowledge workers, it's going to make them more productive. But I think there's a higher chance of in, you know, more like trucking jobs, for example, for it to be a reduction or an elimination of jobs, which I think is a higher pain. Because so you might have an elimination of some jobs, say in knowledge workers, where a company doesn't need to hire as many people to do, you know, what it previously did. But many of those people are going to be able to be way more productive. So as a company scales, for example, they just might not hire as many people. They might keep the same number of people and be just as productive. But it's harder to say that that's going to be the case for trucking. And so I don't know how folks in, in that industry are transitioned to, to something else, because I think we can all agree. And, you know, if we look 100 years in the future, do we think that everything is going to be driverless? I don't know. Probably. What do you think, Sohan? Yeah, no, I think the idea of like, yeah, there's certain jobs like where just one simple AI can kind of replace the whole thing. Like you said, like, you know, like a driving kind of like autonomous vehicle, stuff like that. Those are probably like the biggest scares when it comes to like, oh, like unemployment, just because like there isn't really many applicable skills you can kind of like shift towards something else completely. And I think the problem from there that kind of stems is, so when we start taking away like the jobs kind of at the bottom, so like you know, like fast food workers, you're not going to need cashiers, stuff like that. Like I think like there's already kiosks that kind of are starting to replace it, right? And like the more and more you go, jobs become a lot more limited, like towards the top. But then I think the amount of knowledge you need to get that job also like decreases by like a significant amount, just because of like George said, like you know, like now the fact is like AI can create the content itself, like which is scary because. It's good quality content too, right? Like if you say, oh, write me a speech about this, it'll be a fairly good speech. You you only need to make like minor tweaks and stuff like that. And that's today. Like one, in a couple of years, it's going to be like a lot more powerful, right? So as like the bottom jobs do get replaced, those people can start getting elevated to like a different, like, you know, like more relaxed job as well, where maybe they can work from home and things like that. Maybe I'm just a little bit too optimistic when it comes to stuff like that too, but I can see some positives coming from this. Well, I think it's an interesting thing because you talk about it's going to trend upwards, but then that also means that the entry-level jobs start to get replaced more and more, right? So the average mm-hmm. IQ required for your average job in a particular country increases dramatically. And so then what happens to folks that are below that IQ line? I mean, that's a question for humanity, right? We have 10% of the population. What's the minimum IQ required for the U.S. military? I think it's 83 and so 10% of the population is below that. And U.S. military will hire anyone, right? Because they're sending them into war, for God's sake. And so what do you do that when it becomes 10 and then it goes 15 and then 20% of the population, there's no kind of entry-level jobs. Data entry is dead, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, now with ChatGPT and other tools. So what, what, hap- yeah. what happens to humanity when that occurs? And I actually have another point, which I wanted to bring up is, is that Meta is actually considering another rounds of layoffs for middle managers. And, and we're seeing that this like uh, this whole 2022, 2023 trend has been like a war on managers, a war on white collar jobs. And, and from what we're seeing is that middle managers actually are not needed from the layoffs happening on Twitter, from the layoffs happening at Meta, et cetera. We're seeing the middle managers are not really necessary. So is that eventually going to be replaced by AI or some form of automation tools as well? Because right now the thesis is that AI is only going to impact the basic level jobs. But, but my argument is that will they also impact the middle level jobs? Well, I'm actually curious about that, George. How, how do you think it's going to replace like the middle management job? Because I think like in general, in organizations, coordination of humans is like very difficult. But I guess maybe your point is that you need less people at the bottom in general because your average person is more productive. And so that also affects the middle managers just as much. Or are you seeing like like some software that's allowing for middle management to be you know, more effective without human coordination? I think it's a little bit, bit of both. I think the average worker will be a lot more productive, much more efficient. And on the other hand, you're seeing that I'm pretty sure there's going to be automation software. There's going to be software that's able to tell how productive your workers are and give you like analysis of your workforce situation. Right? think about like a Slack, like some, something, some AI connecting to your Slack and it can tell, okay, if there are any issues with your team and there's anything, anyone you might be able to check in on by analyzing like um, millions or hundreds of millions of Slack messages. So those tools, I mean, ethical grounds aside, obviously it's going to be privacy focused. But, you know, if those tools come into use, like will companies be using them? Because hiring a middle manager costs you like $200,000 to $300,000 for companies like Meta. So removing one manager actually saves them a lot of money down, down the line. That seems like a very large invasion of privacy. Like, I have like kind of a different point of view, but I also agree with George. I think middle manager will be one of the first place to also kind of replace it. Just because 
I think one of the main goals when you're at like a nice firm, like let's just say like Meta, for example, we'll use Meta as a case study. When you start at the bottom, your kind of goal is to get like some kind of a good title, right? Like you want to like get promoted to that point. And the only way to get that is you, you get good at the work you do right now. So let's say you're a software engineer and you want to get to middle management. You got to be a good software engineer. But then by the time you get to middle management, you don't get to be a software engineer anymore. And so you're not good at that work. And so I think once like AI gets implemented and the fact is that you start doing work in the um like the actual software engineering part, you don't really care as much about wanting to become middle management because like the salary at the starting level is just going to be so much higher because it's going to be so many, so much less like let's say software engineers needed. And so if you, your goal is not as like, in a, like a top bucket employee is to be promoted to middle management, then there isn't even like a need for that like promotion, right? Just because like, like the salary part itself is going to make the main like, you know, a goal you have. And if you can, your like starting salary can already be like incredibly high. You don't have like the incentive to like change your role and your main incentive is to just do as good a job as you can in your current role, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, but my argument is still, I don't think middle manager is going to be uh, relevant in the future as much as I think I think meta in specific to your point Matt I think meta is very specific in terms of over hiring for managers apparently you can become an individual contributor and then after that do a few projects and then you become middle manager so there are actually more yeah. middle managers than ICs at some point maybe that didn't happen but that's kind of the point so for meta it's a very specific problem but I think my point is just like do you guys see that more knowledgeable worker jobs not just people on the bottom line which most people these days think that's going to happen but more people in the white collar industry is going to be replaced. And that might include middle managers. Like Matt, do you think that's like something that might happen in the future? Well, I think there's going to be people that are maybe not hired or, or potentially replaced because it's the higher productivity of AI. But it also means that more businesses are going to be spun up. You're going to have more startups that are going to be created that can create businesses with less capital. And so I think we're going to have short term pain where maybe in the short term, you, you have that as more of a problem. But in the meantime, you're going to have you know more startups and more companies that are going to essentially replace that. It's like what happened when we had industrialization um, and what happened to the farmers? Well, the, you know, the farmers came to the, the big city and then they worked in the factories, but what happened to the existing farm? Well, you had industrialization of the farm. And so the farm just became more productive. And then those people worked in factories. And so you've always had a migration of talent all over the place. And so I don't think we're going to suddenly have, you know, mass unemployment and homelessness overnight. I think it's more likely that we're building tools that makes your average human richer, which I think is just better in the long term. But the question is, how long is the short term pain? And how bad is the short term pain? And is it possible that we unleash Pandora's box in a short term that, you know, really messes stuff up? We shall see. <laughs> yeah. So um, well, what, what do you think about, you know, this like concern about maybe it will go for after more jobs than just the basic jobs? I still have like um, some form of optimism in the fact that I just think it's going to create like uh, the quality of life for the people like working a little bit better. And I think we're just going to find some way to like have people be employed because like AI is powerful and it can be powerful in a good way too. You know, it can probably create jobs like, you know, like for example, let's say like nowadays, like, like what Matt's saying, you can start a business. Like it takes so much time, like trying to get incorporated, like all those like annoying stuff. There's probably going to be some like ways you could do that like much faster, much lower capital or in the future, right? So then now, say, for example, like, you know, like, trucks become completely autonomous. Those are, like, very dangerous jobs. If people that were, like, truck drivers can then maybe, like, start some kind of, like, a very niche business of their own, like, with, like, relative ease because of, like, the amount of, like, you know, powerful AIs that are there, I think there's some form of, like, optimism is there as well there. And I think one topic that I actually have just thought about, which is very important, is that the automation and the replacement for startups, for companies, after this, like, AI revolution, I mean... We spoke about like how this can transform jobs, how this can basic jobs out of like, you know, out of existence. How are we looking at it for replacing companies, uh, replacing startups, replacing things that we're paying and using every day? Have you put any thoughts into it? Yeah, that's a good question in terms of there's lots of folks that use. I'm trying to think of like specific applications. Like I know there's lots of folks that use like content writers or, you know, they might hire like a freelancer, like an artist or even like a company to be able to create like the art for their company or to create logo design or, you know, things of these nature. And now you've got, you know, Dolly, or you've even got a combination of things. Like I know, I know someone the other day that was using ChatGPT to generate prompts to go put into Dolly to generate, you know, artwork, you know? <laughs> and so you have this kind of melding of things that are coming together. And so I think we are going to see some of these content writers or freelancers or, or, or things of these nature that are, you know, just going to have, either much lower margins are going to be replaced entirely. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I haven't fully thought about it. I think there are going to be ones that are going to be replaced that we haven't even thought of yet. 
How about you, George? What are your thoughts on which companies you know need to be worried? I, I think the traditional legacy Web two companies and Web one companies that have just been existence and and, and kind of re- actually uh, first thing that came to mind is those like SEO SEO heavy companies. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, my in my business, you you take a look at NerdWallet, take a look at Bankrate, and all the other companies that provide financial advice on the, on the internet for personal financial advice, and they are largely in business because how much of a hold they have on the SEOs and paid ads. So I think a lot of companies that rely on Google that relies on paid ads, like, you know, organic traffic, SEO, I think those companies will be out of business maybe first because I, I'm just predicting like a less use case for people who's going to be doing a search on Google and then going through each article, trying to learn something or trying to find something that's like relevant, right? Like, can you imagine going over five or 10 links just to find something relevant? I've done that many times. I think that efficiency now is being solved by ChatGPT. So I think those companies will be out of business first because they're so heavily rely on advertiser dollars. And, you know, where is the future for advertisement, by the way, with this new AI model, right? Is AI going to tell you some ads or are you going to see like a five second, 10 second ad before the next prompt? So I think advertisement heavy companies are going to be impacted as well. And I think those are just two to start. That's a great point. Well, I'm curious as well whether, you know, for ChatGPT, they've already put out the paid version using the API. And yet we still haven't got clarity on the legal side of things, whether... They're kind of infringing on the copyright of the folks that they're training their AI model on. And so we, we were talking about, well, this is why they have a free model right now is because there's a legal problem. But they already have a paid version now, and that hasn't really been resolved or talked about. And so maybe that just gets waved under the carpet. I don't know. Yeah. So um, well, what do you think about this, actually? I think like in terms of what like uh, companies like this will like replace the most, like most AI, it's just like companies that are really reliant on like information asymmetry, like ones where... Like they have, like for example, like say like lawyers, like they have all the knowledge, and you're going to them for the advice. I think those are the first ones that are kind of going to be like on that chopping block, just because that's like the easiest stuff for like AI to really be able to like replace, just because like that's its bread and butter, being able to like you know like regurgitate a bunch of data and put it into like one clean, concise like format. So then like you know like accounting stuff like that, where you're you're very much relying on like your client, for example, just to not really know as much as you do. And that's going to be like a big uh, disruption in like an industry like that. Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean, apparently right now you can tell and you had to generate like an Excel sheet, apparently. So mm-hmm. people who don't know how to use Excel, they can now create an Excel sheet just by doing a prompt. Yeah. And there, was so, like, uh, there was like this one like AI company that can literally like the most complex Excel. It can just like read through all of it, tell you exactly where like the key prompts are, like what the Excel is trying to do in like a very easy kind of way where like, a, like someone that's like eight years old can kind of understand. So... I think it's going to be really powerful what like some of this what AI can do is going to be. Oh man, with this technology, you're going to have some kid in the basement that creates a fake company basically that does like accounting services <laughs> and it's really just ChatGPT in the background, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah. And speaking of a legal issue, Matt, I think, I think the paid version only gives you access to more uptime and memories of how many prompts you can say during a conversation, apparently. I think Bing also has citation. If you try the new Bing, it's still in beta. It does give you a citation about where it got its data from. Although question is like, you know, how do those people on the citations going to benefit from this? Because apparently I don't think a lot of people is going to be clicking on those links anyways. Right. Yeah. So, so um, what are your, what's your take? I think one thing like um, that I've been like reading like a few like active investors of Google have been trying to like think was just buy a bunch of data right now. Like, just buy it and own like the like access to it and just like don't let like stuff like ChatGPT and other ones like have it. Like Google has over a hundred billion dollars in cash. Like that's like their entire like war chest, right? Like just they were like start just like buying data. I just think that would be like kind of interesting when it comes to like this like legal field because like w- w- once it gets to the point where like even if they're just like uh, citing it, if like Google says no, we don't want like this anywhere else. Like I think that's where like that legal part's really gonna start like ramping up. Yeah, and I think so yeah. far a good point, Matt. I think it, the the question is like how do you justify using their content because I think on most websites. They have a terms and conditions that says you cannot scrape our website. But like my question is like, ChatGPT still scraps it, right? If you have websites that you don't want Google to index, you can actually put like a bot in it. But no one's doing that for AI because, and, and there's no legal issues brought up yet regarding those things because they're not really copying things side by side. And they're not really telling you how they're doing their learning model. So where do you see the legal front of this, is Matt, going forward? Yeah, I, I don't know, to be honest. Because the other thing, too, is is who are you going up against? So who is filing the suit? Who is filing uh, copyright infringement against ChatGPT? 
if it's one individual blog, well, that's probably not going to be very successful. And so you're likely going to need like a class action lawsuit that, you know, gets created and that's going to take time if it even forms. But maybe it's possible that they come up with a model that is actually beneficial. You know, maybe there's a paid citations, right? If you, you know, if your citation is part of the result of ChatGPT, it gets pushed to the, the forefront or it gets pushed to the top. And so maybe there's a new model that, you know, still benefits the underlying creators of the content, but still allows for ChatGPT to train on it. So I don't know. I think it's going to be a tricky one because I imagine eventually it will go to the courts. And it will be up to the courts. But how big is the lawsuit will kind of decide the precedent, right? Are you going to have a large class action or is it going to be one one large company against, you know, ChatGPT and OpenAI? And then depending on what happens in that case, that's going to determine a precedent for all future learning models that are created moving forward. And so I hope that it's not the case where, you know, that gets pushed forward to the courts at some point. And it means that we have no more learning models because I think that, you know, decreases everybody's productivity. So I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. So what's your thoughts? I think one of the biggest things is going to be like uh, just how do like the courts define AI? Because like when it comes to like website scraping, if you just like in you know, like a verbatim, like take it from one website and like put it into your uh, like just on your own blog, but you put it into your own words, that's more inspiration, right? And that's technically what AI is doing. Like AI creates its own like uh, like it's completely unique what ChatGPT like puts out. It's not like um, copy and paste it from any one site. So I think it really becomes like, is it just like AI is like treated differently because of the speed that it can do it at? Versus like if one of us were to like do research on like um, like diamonds, for example, we could write like a one page like uh, article on it, right? And I'm like, well, it'll just take us like a lot longer than like how long AI takes for it. I think that's going to be one of the main like precedents that like kind of gets set from like what Matt said, like the first like, because there's definitely going to be lawsuits from this 110%, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's full, totally expected, like class action suit. Whether it wins or not, I think the intention is to try to bring this to people's attention and try to ju- justify like the pricing model. And and those companies that uh, whose revenue are so based on Google and who are based, so based on advertisement, there's no way they're just going to let that go to another company who right now is burning a lot of money right now, actually. So I, I guess the last segment, I do want to talk about like the opening ad pricing and ChatGPT price. So Snapchat uh, and a few other companies are already using ChatGPT but the actual cost is actually a lot, right? There's like $0.0002 for a thousand tokens, which is pretty much 75 words or 750 words. Um, so Matt, like, what do you think about what a pricing means for companies? Because apparently ChatGPT's owner is losing millions every day. Now Bing is using it and they're probably losing millions every day because they're not charging people to use the prompts. And there are so many other companies like Snap using it. So what are, your, what are your thoughts, Matt, about the business model that it's going to encourage and what do we go from there? Well, I was curious as well whether they were going to start, once again, going back to the legal point is if they start charging for it, what's the, like the legal considerations, because if it's free, then it's, you know, it's fair game. And so they've already started charging for it. But I imagine that if you just think of them as a company and how fast they grew to a million users, there's some examples I remember in the past, like Facebook took you know, several months to get to a million users, you know, when it was first being started, whereas ChatGPT got to a million users in five days, right? And so in terms of becoming a valuable company and being able to monetize on a per user basis, they have a lot of potential of being able to do so. So if they're rolling out, if they're having a free version, and then they're able to convert, the real question here, I think, is if they're able to convert people to the paid version, and how many people they're able to convert, they're able to convert if they have a 500 million users, and they're able to convert 1% to a paid version, then obviously they're doing quite well in revenue per year, but they're still burning, you know, $3 million per day. And so they're going to need to figure out, you know, how are they going to to scale that? And how are they going to make enough revenue to cover the underlying costs? But I think they're already off to a good start to be able to start that process. But obviously, it really depends on long term what the legal ramifications are. What are your thoughts, Sohan? I think the main concern definitely is also going to be like the cost component, just because I remember like reading uh, this one thing, I think it was David Friedberg that said it was like, like Google takes around like two to three cents per search. Like that's how much it costs Google versus like uh, ChatGPT takes over like 30 cents. And so even if you have like certain like percentage that like that convert to like a premium version, it becomes really like uh, hard because Google gets their money through like the advertising. Every time you search it, you can see like, uh, like something, right? And so they get like a good portion from that. Like, unless, like, the subscription model, like, has, like, a lot of people converting, each search is not profitable. Each search is goes down as a loss, and you just have to absorb that and to, 
like uh, the small amount of people that will go into like the premium version. So it really just depends on how much you can diversify the features to like start getting people to want to go premium. Like Spotify did like I think a really good job where they gave a good free version, but like it really incentivized people to go premium because like those like ads were really irritating, right? So I honestly think maybe like just like putting ads like every like two or three searches, you have to go through an ad or something like that could be kind of like uh, useful for them as well. Yeah, it's such a great point. Uh, I never thought about that. So I'm like, I think like having like a paid ad version, a freemium version is actually such a good idea. I've always been thinking about like the API side, about mm-hmm. developers paying a per API call. But, you know, you, you might be right. I think the consumer side might be more worth it because people are now relying on the tool now, yeah. I think. Just because of, I think it's like the amount of computing power it's going to take for like literally any one of these one searches is like very different than like Google. Like it. Google's like a thing right now for like Google.com. It's almost nowhere near like the amount of computing power it takes for like ChatGPT, right? So there has to be something where on like a per search basis, they can have some kind of like revenue. Maybe they could lose money, but they have to subsidize like how much they're losing per search, I think is going to be an important factor. Yeah. But they did make a pack with Microsoft and Microsoft is giving them the Azure cloud credits. I guess that's one good thing they've made a deal with. Um, So maybe they don't have to think about the cloud computing costs in the short term. Uh, Matt, what's your thoughts about the final thoughts about the cost and other things? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Soham. If you're able to create, if they're able to create some type of freemium model, like if you're able to, if the cost of your kind of free users is able to be covered effectively by your paid users and enough of those are, are converting, then then the whole system, you know, makes sense. And if the majority are actually converting, then I, I think you can um, justify the cost long-term. But if But if that's not the case, then they definitely got a problem. So I think if they can focus on freemium, then then they might be in a good spot. Awesome. So I think that will be, you know, everything we discussed for this episode. Something excited to announce, like we're actually branching out our segment, this segment into called Finance Kids. I think also how Matt and I think this is like a great segment name for our segment, talking about different aspects in finance and analyzing everything for our audiences. So if you want to be featured, I'm on Twitter as at, the George Poo. And then, you know, the show is also on Instagram and TikTok as George Poo Show. So thank you guys uh, for joining the show today. And I look forward to seeing you guys this week.